Hello, and welcome to Partially Redacted, a podcast where we discuss data privacy engineering and related topics. I'm your host, Sean Faulkner, and today I'm joined by CEO and founder of Skyflow, Anshu Sharma. And we'll be discussing what is a data privacy vault and what problems it helps companies solve. Anshu, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Sean. Awesome. So we've known each other for uh, quite some time at this point. Uh, I believe we first met now over 10 years ago, which is uh, pretty crazy to think about. But for those of you out there that haven't had the fortune of, of, of meeting you, can you start off by introducing yourself and share a bit about your backstory? Yeah. So, you know, I am engineer by trade. I still like to pretend I'm still an engineer at heart. But I spent most of my career as first as an engineer, then as a product manager, uh, product leader at companies like Oracle and Salesforce. I lost my way for a few years, became a VC, uh, invested in a bunch of interesting companies, some of them doing incredibly well. But my heart was always in building new things, new experiences. And when I saw privacy become a challenge for many, many leading companies, I thought if you could really rethink the problem uh, bottom up, there might be an interesting company to build here. And that's how Skyflow got started. So did your interest in privacy start when you were spending time as, you know, in, in executive roles at companies like Salesforce and Oracle, or is that something that came about later when you were working as an investor? So um, back in the day, we didn't call it privacy. Uh, you know, I've been working on data platforms and uh, built products in the identity space, CRM space. And as you do that, you end up with data that today we would call sensitive personal data. And at that time, you know, the language people would use is, hey, how do I make sure this data doesn't fall into wrong hands? Some of our largest customers would be like, how can I trust the cloud? I will never have my customers' data in the cloud. But the underlying problem hasn't changed irrespective of the buzzword we use. And the underlying problem is, businesses need to capture and use personal data in order to deliver service and value to their customers. And it's been incredibly hard for, for ever on how to manage this data in a secure way while respecting customers' privacy. I think the word privacy started emerging, frankly, when social networks blatantly started misusing the personal data and then ad networks doubled down on that and I think in some ways, the bad actors led to a backlash, which led to companies like Apple saying, hey, privacy by itself is an important value and we should talk about it explicitly rather than implicitly. Mm -hmm. But there, there was this time, I feel like when, especially when, you know, 2005, 2008-ish, which at that time I was in graduate school and that was really like when Facebook and other social networks were sort of founded and getting big. And I felt like there was sort of a sentiment that, you know, privacy was dead, everything's now online. And really the only people that, that care about that is the nuances of it is like, you know, the grad school geeks like myself that were spending all the time thinking about technology. So it feels like there's been a shift though in public consciousness and perception since then. So what actually changed? Like why do people now suddenly care about privacy? The honest answer is money. Uh, I think, um, Three or four years ago, Facebook had to pay a $5 billion fine. I think if you go back, you know, any time before that, 
people would lose hundreds of millions of people's social security numbers and maybe get like a million dollar fine. Oftentimes they would say, hey, here is some credit monitoring service for you. And, you know, the stock price often wouldn't even go down. It would go up because, uh, you know, of third, um, certain other factors. So I think the $5 billion fine wasn't just in isolation. Together with that, I think the Europeans uh, really started cracking down on big tech. And one of the ways they started cracking down was to talk about privacy and data sovereignty and stuff. Some of that came, frankly, from just competitive concerns and wanting to support their own. But I think a lot of that is rooted in a genuine interest in protecting the user's privacy. So I think the combination of the environment changing, especially in Europe, and uh, the big fines basically woke up the largest organizations. It's one thing to pay lip service to privacy when the worst thing that can happen to you is a million dollar fine. It's entirely different when it can be a billion dollar fine. And we saw that last week. Uh, Twitter just, you know, was misusing phone numbers to send marketing messages when some of those phone numbers were originally corrected for two-factor authentication. You know, 10 years ago, this wouldn't even be a thing that the Federal Trade Communication uh, Commission would look into. But the FTC imposed like a $100, $200 million fine. And that wakes you up, right? Nobody can just sit there and ignore those kind of numbers. And I think the market demands it too. So between the pressure campaigns by companies like Apple, you know, you can disagree with whether Apple is doing it for altruistic reasons or strategic reasons, or they're trying to crush their competition. You can have all kinds of opinion about it, but the fact remains that when your billboard for a phone just says privacy, and when you have TV ad campaigns that extol privacy, everybody else has to respond to it, irrespective of what the motivation of Apple might be. Right. And the end result for the user is still better, right? Where the user is going to be, uh, you know, protected. So even if Apple's doing it for, you know, marketing reasons, the end result for the consumer is still the same. It doesn't actually matter what the motivation of the company is, right? Yeah. And I actually think a lot of people there do care about uh, user protection and privacy. Mm-hmm. So there's, you know, this, as you mentioned, there's now these, you know, financial reasons for companies to, to prioritize privacy. And then there's also, I think, a growing public consciousness around these issues and more sensitivity about what businesses are doing with people's data. But why is, you know, given that there's these different pressures, it seems like we're still, you know, every week there's a data breach. There's these different issues that are happening. Why is data privacy so hard for companies? I think data privacy is one of those things which is not an attribute that can be attached to a particular workflow or a particular data type or a particular thing. It's it's a it's it touches so many aspects of what you're doing as a company that a holistic view is required. And it's kind of like design. So if you look at companies like Airbnb that did a great job with design, you go look at, you know, other hotel chains where the design just sucks. And, you know, why is design so hard? Design is so hard because it's a sum of all experiences that you have with a brand. You know, it's the way the music plays when you're on hold. It's how long you have to wait. 
It's the way the click on a button on their website feels. Each component of that adds up to what we call experiencing design. I think privacy is kind of like the same thing. You know, no single thing makes you feel like this company uh, is doing a great job with privacy. It's a sum of all experiences. When you, let's say you're using a company to file your taxes online. You know, when they ask you to start filling up your form, do they ask for your social security number even before you get started? Well, that's going to feel slightly creepy because you haven't even quite finished. Are they going to display that number in plain text while you're filling up the form or is it partially redacted? That's going to feel a little bit. When they're accepting payment, are they making you type the phone number and the credit card number in plain text? So each of these interactions is going to give you sort of a hint of privacy. And if you are the chief technology officer or the CEO of a company, design and privacy and other similar such things are all encompassing and require a holistic solution. So it's been difficult for companies to even wrap their heads around it. And the notion that people had initially, which is maybe privacy is a security is provably false because in some ways, Facebook never had a breach ever. Uh, all the privacy challenges they have were design challenges. This doesn't think through the fact that if you share certain kinds of data with certain kinds of advertisers and such, it creates privacy implications that you didn't think through. So it's a, it's a topic that requires thought. It requires systems to work end to end. And so it's just hard for companies to do. Um, yeah, I think that's really interesting, the analogy to, uh, you know, something like design. I, I see a similar analogy with like developer experience. People always hold up companies like Stripe and Twilio as these sort of, you know, hallmarks of developer experience. And then they try to copy what they're doing, but they don't really understand that part of copying what they're doing is those companies have a culture of developer experiences baked into. It's not like one person owns that thing it's like everybody owns that thing as part of the culture and i think when it comes to privacy companies that do it really well essentially have established a culture of privacy uh that uh permeates everything that they do it's not just sort of one functional area owning that thing exactly so skyflow offers a, a data privacy vault delivers an api so i think a good place to start when in in this you know conversation as we dive in is in your own words what is a data privacy vault so data privacy vault is a very simple idea in some ways. It says that there are certain types of data, personal data especially, that requires different kinds of controls, different kinds of end-to-end -end policies, different kinds of enforcement, different kind of rules. And just like we don't take username passwords these days and stick them into a regular database and hope nobody sees them, we have special purpose identity systems. We have special purpose payment systems. Similarly, I think now that we recognize that personal data is in and of itself valuable and yet must be used across systems, the best way to solve that problem is actually to build a container, if you will, that is designed ground up for handling personal sensitive data. And we call that a data privacy vault. Essentially what it is, is this encrypted data store with a set of simple APIs so that you as a developer can entrust this data privacy vault with 
sensitive customer data and still be able to use it, still be able to run workflows against it without having to worry about security, compliance, privacy, data residency. Mm -hmm. And where did this type of technology originally come from? So people have been isolating certain kinds of data for 30 or 40 years. In fact, if you go back uh, 30 years or so, even I was in school back then, but there used to be cages. So if you were an airline, you would run, let's say your ticketing system on a set of mainframes or databases, but then the credit card data might be stored in an isolated system in a data center. It may literally have its own cage and it has its own control. So people can just steal that data. You know, in fact, even you go back further, people have, you know, that's why offices have safes because you keep certain types of data in a safe versus a cupboard. So I think we've always known that certain types of data requires a higher level of protection and requires its own sort of container. I think in the last 10 years, companies like Apple, Google, Netflix, Capital One, Goldman Sachs, and many, many others have publicly shared that they've taken some of their sensitive data and isolated it. Some people call that a zero trust paradigm for PII, some people call it isolation, but for various different reasons, people have been doing isolation for credit card data and some other sensitive data for five to 10 years. It's just been incredibly complex for people to build. So only the largest companies in the world that have you know hundreds of engineers that just work on this problem uh, have been able to build this effectively. And the others, you know, either have to build or buy. Mm -hmm. And how does the, the, the vault, like, so it's, I, it's one thing that I guess like isolate and protect the data, but how does it help with things? And when we talk about like compliance and like data security. So once you've isolated and protected PII data, uh, let's say you want to be compliant with PCI compliance, which is a credit card format. By isolating that, now you just have to make sure that that environment is PCI compliant. In our case, we are already PCI level two, level one compliant, so you get that out of the box. You may have sensitive healthcare data, so you may need HIPAA compliance. We are already HIPAA compliant, so as a result, you inherit some of those properties. Uh, I think compliance has to... Uh, aspects. One is the compliance that you're dealing with. And the second is the scope of the compliance. And what essentially the zero trust data privacy vault architecture does is it reduces the scope of what has to be compliant from, let's say you're a large bank, you may have hundreds of databases and hundreds of applications and thousands of users. If you want to be compliant with respect to a certain standard, whether it's data residency or GDPR or CCPA, CPRA, doing an audit of these hundreds of systems, even five systems can be quite expensive, uh, as opposed to saying, hey, we've isolated this entire thing to this container. Everything is audited. Everything is logged. We have policies for everything. You can sort of get to your compliance outcomes much, much faster because you've narrowed the scope of compliance down. Mm -hmm. And then I guess, like, how is this different than using something like a dedicated encrypted database that you're putting your PII in? Sure. Um, I think there are 
five to seven different components that you need to have in order to actually solve this problem. An encrypted database, you know, we've had those things for 30 years, essentially encrypts the data when it's on disk, but decrypts the data when you have to use it. Now, in the old times when people used to lose their data because people ran away with disks and people thieves broke into data centers, that, that's not a problem anymore. The problem that we have now, whether it's the Equifax hack or the Marriott hack or the Twitter challenge or Facebook, all of these bad actors and even insiders who were just doing the right thing sometimes are accessing the data through the front door. They're coming in through your APIs or through your applications or through your analytical platforms. So encrypting data on disk doesn't really solve anything. What you need is have the data encrypted to the point that you only decrypt it when you need it. So take an example of a customer support person. Just because they need to match your last four digits of your phone number to look you up, traditionally that's required decrypting the data because you can't do a partial search. Well, using our polymorphic data encryption and tokenization capabilities, we can do a partial search and give you the number uh, of the customer back. And as a result, the customer support rep is not seeing the number. They can search for it. It may be partially redacted. It may be completely masked. So you need governance, encryption, tokenization, policy-based enforcement, you need to be able to have roles and rules. And all of those things have to work coherently together because if you get one of those five or six things wrong, essentially you end up with a data breach situation. So you need to basically build this zero trust data privacy vault and you can build it, of course, just like we did, but you know, it took us 50 engineers just to get started. So maybe you have smarter engineers, maybe it takes you only 12, but it's a, it's a complex undertaking. So why is an API the right sort of mechanism to deliver this technology to a business? Well, you know, I think API speaks to the fact that we want this to be used in modern data and application architectures. It speaks to the fact that we've radically simplified what you're doing here. So your access pattern is just invoking an API for a phone number, whether you're trying to call Twilio or whether you're trying to make a payment. So the access pattern hasn't changed. What has changed fundamentally is what happens behind that API call. So, you know, when you make that API call, we figure out based on the zero trust principles, what user, in what context, under what application, from which country, what region is trying to access the data. And then intelligently we figure out what parts of data can be shown, cannot be shown, what access patterns are allowed, not allowed. So there's a lot of complexity under the hood, but from a developer's perspective, the beauty is it's just like accessing another data store or accessing Auth0. You're basically making some simple API calls and it magically gives you the right results. So API mindset was important. We did not want to deliver to companies, uh, you know, a complex platform that they have to figure out how to tune, run, manage, secure. It takes away value. So from your perspective, we give you this API. Now uh, for larger customers, we can do this in a dedicated VPC. We can do it with 
your own key management. So you can customize it and make it your own, but you can get started in like 15 minutes and then you can over time customize it as much as you want. Sorry for the interruption, folks, but I just had a few quick reminders. If you're enjoying this episode, please hit the subscribe button so you can always get the latest episode and help others discover the show by leaving a rating and review in your favorite podcast app. It really helps. Last thing before I get you back to the interview, if you are interested in the topics discussed in this podcast, then you should definitely, definitely join the Partially Redacted community at skyflow.com slash community. There you can meet other interesting and like-minded individuals like yourself, share your expertise, or just passively engage, totally up to you. All right, now back to the show. And you you talked about some of the ways in which the vault facilitates uh, like usability. You mentioned, you know, polymorphic encryption and the customer support use case. And I think, you know, I think when, when we talk about a vault, I think uh, the immediate reaction or the immediate thing to think about is like, you know, are we basically locking data away and then throwing away the key, but we store that data so that we can use it. What are, I guess, some of the ways that the vault facilitates utility while still protecting the data? Because ultimately we want to be able to actually use this data in some fashion. Yeah, so, you know, traditional tokenization techniques essentially render the data useless. So yes, you can convert somebody's phone number into X17, but now how do I do things like find out how many people uh, in area code 408 have COVID or have a bank balance greater than 100,000? How does my machine learning team run machine learning models? How does my customer support team locate a customer who's forgotten his ticket or has forgotten their account number? So just like locking up data essentially can break applications, break workflows, break uh, the functionality. So we had to fundamentally re-architect the solution and that's why the technology we've built, we call this polymorphic data encryption and tokenization, essentially under the hood has intelligence so that you can actually still do the operations you need to do to perform your workflows and analytics and search without decrypting the data. And it's based on principles which are very similar to fully homomorphic encryption, which is sort of a research uh, initiative but we've taken those ideas and implemented them in a different manner so that you can actually have your cake and eat it too. Right. And um, so it seems like, you know, as part of the vault, essentially you have this specialized uh, storage means for, for P, essentially PII. So as part of that, you're, that's like a new piece of architecture. So in, in many ways, this is like, you know, privacy by architecture. How does this kind of model of thinking about data privacy relate to things like privacy by design? Yeah, so I think privacy by design uh, is a very good concept. Uh, it's a set of intentions. It says things like, hey, you know, you should be uh, mindful of how you use a customer's data. It should, you know, you should have some processes and stuff. But design doesn't actually give you the answer, right? It's kind of like saying we should have the intention of reducing carbon footprint. Well, that's great, right? We've had those hippie rallies since 1960s, but in the end, it takes someone like Elon Musk to come out and say, look, the way to do it is you have solar panels, you have an electric car, you have a battery, and that's the engineering answer. And the architecture is you're gonna have these panels in your roof or in fields, 
So when you can convert design and intention into an engineering solution so that you have an architecture that you can actually implement, you've gone from defining the problem and values to actually defining a solution that can be implemented by customers. So we think privacy by architecture is the answer to privacy by design. Privacy by design is the question and not necessarily the answer. Right. So if, if this is essentially uh, like a translation of or, or an actionable version of privacy by design, who within an organization is typically responsible for actually doing the integration of a data privacy vault since it's, it's going to be touching things like the, you know, the infrastructure as well as on different points of, uh, of the actual application? Yeah. So what you find is it depends on uh, the stage of the company and what was the motivation. So sometimes... Um, a customer will come in and their primary motivation is data residency, in which case it's typically the database team or the data architecture team that's responsible. Sometimes it's coming in from someone who's redefining how you do KYC on onboard new users. So typically that's identity, identity verification teams. So someone in that team is going to be responsible. And in other cases, it's going to be the data lake team because you're trying to protect the data in Snowflake or Databricks. So these are the three different constituents. There are others, like sometimes you're running a Twilio project and you need to protect phone numbers and so on and so forth. Workload-specific teams, typically a private engineer on that team. Some companies now have dedicated privacy engineering teams. And if they have a dedicated privacy engineering team, they will work with the workload team, whoever is building that particular application or building that particular data system. And then, so that's sort of the bottom up view of the world. There are many customers where it's the CTO who at the end of the day has sleepless nights, right? So individual teams are all doing the right thing. This happened at Uber and Twitter and Facebook. If you think about it, it's really the CTO or the CEO at Uber who had to eventually be like, oh, so drivers can just call back the customer and try to, you know, date them or harass them. Uh, they found out customer service people were tracking their ex-girlfriends and such. So individually, none of the systems were broken. Customer support team application was working as designed. Your mobile app was working as designed. But usually the top level execs, sometimes it's the board, are asking questions like, how do we make our privacy experience better. And in those cases, oftentimes it'll be someone like the CTO for smaller companies. Sometimes it's even the CEO. So we've seen those two patterns of how to solve the problem. And if someone is not using something like a data privacy vault that they built, or, you know, perhaps they're, they're buying through Skyflow, how do they, what's like the traditional approach to solving some of these challenges that, that companies face in the data privacy space? Yeah, I mean, you know, it reminds me of the time when people did not have uh, identity management systems or secrets manager. Or, you know, I was talking to a CEO of a large company this morning and they were talking about how people used to build their own database systems. And, you know, each developer would figure out the flat file uh, layout for the data. I think what we are seeing now is companies are solving this problem piecemeal. So they will 
worry about the fact that the API call from their front-end application to their database server is not protected. They go by an API discovery product, an API protection product. Another team that's responsible for database security is going to go by a database encryption management system. Another team that's running data science and machine learning may go by a data governance platform for data lakes. So you can solve parts of the problem in places, but you know it's kind of like taking a 50-year-old home and patching up one door, one window at a time. It doesn't really solve the problem, but makes you feel safe in one room at a time. And I think a comprehensive solution is the right approach, but oftentimes customers will take these point-point solutions till they realize it doesn't really solve the whole thing. And then they find someone like us or start building their own data privacy vault. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's been a lot of uh, innovation in sort of the privacy space. And there's been obviously like uh, years of research in the privacy enhancing technologies, but now we're sort of reaching a point where some of those things are actually enterprise or production level. What do you think are some of the big gaps in data privacy today? And what are some of the future technologies or developments that you're uh, excited about? So, yeah, I think um, we've taken the idea of isolation and protection to its next level. We've taken some of the core concepts around encryption to the next level. I think there's still room for some of the new technologies that are very promising are things like secure enclaves. Uh, it's a hot topic these days. It protects you in certain cases from a malicious cloud platform company. Uh, as I tell customers, that's rarely, if ever, the vector of attack. Uh, but I think there's immense work going on there at companies like Intel and AMD. I think there is uh, people are still chasing fully homomorphic encryption. Um, I think eventually it'll become more viable, hopefully. Uh, there are other people who are trying to solve the problem of uh, security by eliminating uh, the use of certain types of data entirely end-to-end -end in systems. So uh, this is sort of a, rather than solving privacy, you're trying to eliminate. So think of it as, could we get rid of social security numbers in the American tax filing system? There's no reason why it has to be the way it is you could do things, very interesting things with today's technology using things like Skyflow and others where you could generate one-time tokens, you could do verifications. A lot of that boils down to what we call zero-knowledge proofs and zero-knowledge systems. Zero-knowledge systems are essentially algorithms and data structures where you are able to make a decision or get the answer to your question without revealing the underlying fact information. The simplest way to think about it is you, you walk into a bar and without looking at your driver's license, sometimes the bartender can be like, yeah, this guy's 21 plus. And so you made an assessment without knowing my exact date of birth. And in some ways, that's not exactly zero knowledge because you kind of guessed from, the, from my sense of dress or looked at my hair. But that's a close approximation to what zero knowledge proof means that you don't have to look at the underlying facts. There is another way to uh, ascertain, make certain assertions and those assertions can then be validated. Those assertions can be respected. It takes an ecosystem based approach to really implement those things though.
Yeah, I think uh, my, my gray hairs are now the, 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 the only knowledge the barkeep needs in order to assess my age. Um, so obviously you, you know, part of your job is like knowing this space and obviously you know a lot about it and have an interest in it. But for someone who's like working to learn more, what are, like, where, what are the resources that you rely on to kind of stay up to date on what's going on in the data privacy world? Well, um, privacy is not one of those problems where you can get all the information from one, one, one place. Um, I like reading about the underlying technologies from different sources. So for data security, there are lots of conferences out there that focus on things like encryption. There are conferences like Pepper that focus on actual privacy and compliance. There are you know, publications around data management, there are publications around uh, some of the breakthroughs in research. So I think my source of information is frankly, I follow about 100 to 200 people that have a cross section of experience with different kinds of data and technologies on Twitter. And then oftentimes it'll turn into a research paper that you know has some innovation around zero knowledge systems uh, someone has figured out some way of doing uh, encrypted computations. Someone else has figured out how to make fully homomorphic encryption, uh, you know, only a million times slower rather than 10 million times slower. So I follow a lot of researchers. There's a lot of good professors doing work there. But the key is to follow the pipeline from research to practitioners and then map that back to the problems that people are facing. And then now increasingly there are privacy engineering leaders at various companies who are fairly knowledgeable and, you know, they will often give talks and uh, write about it and all of those things I try to learn and follow. Yeah. And I will say that one of the things I've noticed since I've started to get involved in the space is that people who are working in privacy, it's a very generous uh, group of people who are, you know, willing to talk to you if you express any interest in, in, in what they're doing, they're happy to share uh, their expertise and, and, you know, have conversations with you. Yeah, I think that it's a rich, small community and people really like talking to each other and helping each other solve the same problems. Yeah, it's a very tight knit uh, community. So once you've kind of got your foot in the door, you, you're going to meet a lot of people, uh, you know, it's a highly connected network, essentially. Anything else you would like to uh, share uh, about Data Privacy Vault or anything that's also on your on your mind in relation to data privacy? I think we oftentimes move to the outside, inside out way of thinking about this, especially as practitioners of privacy engineering. I think the best thing we can all do is to think outside in, right? Like you go to a pharmacy, when they collect your phone number, what are they really doing with it? You know, oftentimes they're just using that as an identifier to make sure that you are who you are. They're not even calling your doctor. Well, that's a different use of a phone number than uh, it was intended. Um, you go to, you know, an airline and they're using these days the name of your first cat or your ex-girlfriend's, you know, dog's eye color and they're using it essentially to verify you, but it's a very poor way of verifying people. It's, it's a 
it's a sort of a converse of the zero knowledge system where zero knowledge is in my head oftentimes. But I think for me, observing how people use data and it's oftentimes not as simple as you think. Uh, you know, one of my favorite things these days is a phone number is not a number, right? Uh, a social security number is not a number. We don't use it in any numerical sense. Half the time we don't use a phone number to really call you, you know, Half the time we're using it for 2FA. Well, for 2FA, there are better mechanisms. So there's a sort of a polymorphism of data types and workflows that has infected and, you know, sort of evolved in how we as a society really run on a few data types and how we use them. And it facilitates real world interactions. It makes our life easier in many cases, but if you're going to move to a more privacy-centric society, we'll have to rethink how some of these things are used. Uh, is social security number really the right thing to use as a password effectively in many uh, in many systems? Um, is you know your cat's name really the right way to verify you? Aren't there better mechanisms? You could have, for example, your bank could certify who you are, generate some kind of assertion that goes to your phone. Maybe you can share that assertion with the airline. Um, you know, why doesn't United Airlines, for example, simply send a message to my phone and at least for people who have their United app, they could do face ID. And we know it's possible because some banks have done it. But I think by thinking about this problem as an end user and putting on your systems-based thinking is how I think we as an industry will evolve this solution space and come up with innovative new ideas that can be actually implemented. Yeah, I think there's been so much overloading of these sort of um, traditional elements that we've used as uh, representations of people as like a phone number or social security number or, or whatever it is. And now the original intention and meaning of those things has completely changed through the last you know 20 years of uh, technology development and the way that uh, companies are using that information essentially. Yes. Well, awesome, Anshu. Thanks so much for sharing your expertise and experience. And thanks for, for coming on the show today. Thanks, Sean. It's been great fun.